CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarowski Show. As I speak, it's Friday, December 22nd, 2023. Uh, this is essentially our Christmas show. Uh, and because uh, it's dropping right around Christmas, I'm going to give you a headline uh, that something from the newspaper that I just saw right now, <laughs> uh, which is not even probably going to be a topic of conversation with my distinguished guest who's patiently waiting. Uh, but I'm going to alert it, read it to you anyway to give you a sense of what's going on in the world and what I have been talking about obsessively uh, one way or another on uh, this show. It's an essay from uh, the uh, Washington Post uh, asking, uh, <laughs> not that anyone's going to listen to this, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, calling Justice Clarence Thomas uh, dracoos himself on the cases regarding Donald Trump uh, and whether Donald Trump, one, can be prosecuted for uh, alleged crimes committed while he was president. That's an issue that's going to be coming before the Supremes. And two, uh, whether Donald Trump is even eligible uh, to be on the ballot uh, for president uh, because uh, as the Co Colorado State Supreme Court ruled, he's clearly an insurrectionist and it is clearly stipulated uh, in the U.S. Constitution that an insurrectionist cannot run uh, for president or uh, if he if it was the presidency that uh, he was committing the insurrection against. So that case is also going to be coming before uh, the Supremes and Clarence Thomas. Uh, Ginny Thomas, wife of Clarence Thomas, once sent an email. <laughs> this is so once sent an email to Donald Trump's former House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, in the weeks following the 2020 election, when Trump was scheming, when the insurrection was taking place, when the attempted coup was being put together, she, Ginny Thomas, wife of Clarence Thomas, sent an email saying uh, they must do what they can to prevent, quote, the greatest heist of our history. And that heist was allegedly the one in which Joe Biden, who won the election, supposedly stole the election. So as best friend of Clarence Thomas and wife of Clarence Thomas, I don't know. That could be a conflict of interest that she was one of the leading participants or cheerleaders at the very least. 
of the alleged insurrection uh, that Trump uh, is makes him ineligible to run. Very interesting column. Much conversation uh, for the future. And I will just leave you with this, folks, before I bring on my distinguished guests, because this kind of relates to my distinguished guests. In the world of politics and in the world of sports, there are rules. And in the world of poetry, there are rules. And the great Robert Frost, one of the greatest poets in the history of American fiction and poetry, once wrote, and I'm paraphrasing from memory, that he did not like free verse. He wanted rhyme. He wanted to follow a scheme to his poetry. Why? Because free verse, writing a free verse, was like playing tennis without a net. And that's a perfect metaphor for what MAGA wants. They don't want Donnie Trump to abide by any rule. They want Donald Trump to play tennis as though the net did not exist as though there were no out-of-bounds lines, as though, like, if you're watching a great tennis match at Forest Hills, showing my age by calling it Forest Hills, the U.S. Open, and they show, they have this high-tech camera shot that shows that the ball, the shadow of the ball is outside the line. MAGA wants to say it doesn't matter if it's outside the line if Donald Trump hit it, because rules and regulations, they may abide. (laughs) They may, you know, Coco may have to follow the rules and regulations. But Donald Trump doesn't. Be interesting what Donald Trump's thoughts are in Robert Frost and free verse versus rhyme, et cetera, and so forth. All right. Enough oration for me for the moment. Without any more delay, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself, and away we will go. Take it away, distinguished guest. Hey, Ben. I'm Rick Tellender, uh, senior sports columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times and children's author. Yes. And that... <laughs> that is why I brought him on uh, late. Well, I was looking for any excuse to bring Rick on. That's always a blast talking to Rick. Uh, usually we talk sports. Rick, before we take the deep dive in this, I want to take you back in time to the first time you ever appeared on a show that I hosted. You probably don't even remember this. I forget what, what, what the ostensible reason for having you on was or even what we discussed. I just remember you saying you were feeling, feeling weary that day. This was, I believe, this is, uh, six years ago, I want to say, and you go, Ben, I'm slowing down. I, I'm no more the, the regular obligations. I'm just going to write an occasional column. I've been working. Ben, I started working. I was 14 years old in Peoria. Africa. You know, I've been working every day and I'm 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 slowing down. This dude just wrote a freaking book of poetry, ladies and gentlemen. He writes a regular, I just weighed in on Justin Fields. I completely disagree with his column, but whatever. We don't agree on everything. And he also had this interview with the Northwestern quarterback, which had me smiling because it's like Rick and I are ancient, the ancient Mariners, bringing in more poetry. And here's this kid. He's such a baby with a baby face. And this kid probably didn't know that Rick Teller played at Northwestern. He certainly doesn't know that. I'm a diehard Northwestern fan. He's my head examined for that. Anyway, Rick, if you're slowing down, it's a pretty funny way of showing you're slowing down, <laughs> right? Just <laughs> yeah, but Listen, that monologue was fabulous. Uh, I, I've never heard Donald Trump and Robert Frost in the same sentence. And um, it's fabulous. I, I don't think Robert, I mean, uh, Donald Trump, I'm not sure he can read. And, you know, let alone read poetry. Uh, so anyway, um, 
this would, you know, just a, a thought on this. This would all be comical. What's going on in America with all these these creatures, these strange people? You know, uh, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani. I mean, these these people. If Shakespeare were alive, like gr- perhaps the greatest poet in the history of the planet, he would write play after play about these people. You know, Iago, uh, all the characters, King Lear. They're nothing compared to these people. Buffoons, clowns, idiots, evil. Everything you could possibly think of. And one other thing that always strikes me, it's, it would be comical, but so was the start of the Nazis. They were comical. They, they had these made-up uniforms. They walked around and had these oddball ceremonies. They were just like idiots, you know, like, look at these goofballs. Well, <laughs> that changed when they got power. And I see us as being almost in the same place. And God Almighty, we hope that the Supreme Court and the Constitution can save us. Well, there Ultimately, it may come down to the American people saving themselves. Uh, and uh, because, again, we were, I, I would, do not intend to have this conversation again. I've had it so many times this week. I do not, uh, Rick, believe that the Supremes will uphold the Colorado uh, state court and kick uh, Trump off the ballot. Even though, again, I will say this. If you re- go by the rules, if you play by the rules, he violated the rules. So, you know, it's kind of I, the analogy I use. It, we're going to get the main thing I want to talk to you about. But the analogy I use is the, the hissy fit thrown by Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid. Inexcusable hissy fit. They um, in the game, Kansas City, a superstar quarterback and the coach of Kansas City, who should know better. Uh, one of their receivers was offside, thus nullifying a great touchdown. Uh, in a game that they went on losing. And Patrick Mahomes threw a monumental hissy fit where he essentially said, you know what, uh, you shouldn't call that rule and take the, the game. Shouldn't A referee's uh, decision should not be the determining force in the game. And I'm like, dude, there are rules. <laughs> I mean, you the, the reason you have referees is to enforce the rule. You don't want the referee to enforce the rules then just like have like a flat, a touch football game in the park. Yeah, call your own. You know, one thing about that, the wide receiver lined up way off sides, obviously. And now he was the guy who ends up getting a pass, a second pass from Kelsey, actually a lateral backward pass, and scoring the touchdown. Now, did him being off sides give them an advantage? It might have. And nobody even mentions that. They're just talking about why do you call, you know, off sides on a guy? You can't see where the line of scrimmage is. But my God, if you're playing and you're a wide receiver, you might want to think about it. Ask the, you know, before the play, ask the ref, am I onside or offside? They'll almost always tell you. They'll move their hand, you know, move back a little. Uh, but he was way offside. So, yeah, that hissy fit was really something. Yeah, it was pathetic. And it was very MAGA-like. By the way, I, all right, I really don't want to follow you up, but, but I don't believe the referee should tell you whether you're violating the rules or not. That's that's a whole other issue. Should a referee, isn't that, isn't that isn't that inserting yourself into a game where they say they don't want you? It is, Ben, except for this one thing. The only people who don't know where the first down marker line is or the line of scrimmage are the players. We watching TV can see it. The fans with a vantage point way up high can see it. But you're a player. I was a wide receiver in high school and then for two years in college. And it's difficult when you're flanked out and there's no yard markers really. And you have to kind of guess and you're looking sideways. Now, there's no excuse for being outside, but – being offside, you want to be as close to the the line of scrimmage as you can get. And you might be an inch over or an inch back because it is an advantage. You want to get downfield quickly. And sometimes the ref will just nod to you because 
it's yeah, it's kind of a BS rule, but if it's broken, it isn't a BS rule because it's really an advantage. Hell, line up six yards <laughs> offside, you know. <laughs> These reasons are our rules in sports, right. Patrick Mahomes. Okay. Uh, and listen, you don't want to play in the NFL for a year. I I didn't play high school ball. My friends and I would go down uh, to the park. I grew up in Evanston. We go down to Lee Street. We played. We had a blast playing one-handed touch, and nobody there was no refs anywhere. Okay, Patrick Mahomes, you could go down the Lee Park there in Evanston, uh, Lee Street Beach. All right, uh, Rick, let's uh, get down to business here. And um, uh, you caught me off guard. I got to say, uh, there was an essay that you wrote in the Sun Times, and uh, I, I always seem to be visiting my uh, my family in California when these come out. So I didn't see the actual uh, newspaper copy. I read it online. Uh, it was a Saturday, as I recall, around Thanksgiving. And that's where you revealed, at least I said to the world, but at least as far as I was concerned, that you had just authored a book of poetry. And I had never even knew that you had a love for poetry. Uh, and I got to tell you, um, I was really impressed. One, that you had the discipline to write the poetry. Two, that you overcome any insecurity that a reporter would have to put his poetry out there. Uh, God, I've tempted poetry and I would be, I should burn it because it's so bad. Uh, and you're pretty good at it. I got to give you credit. You have a sense of rhyme. You also have like, you have a really, str- going back to our analogy, you're more, uh, I'm not saying you're as good as Robert Frost, not making it, but you have, uh, you have a very a strong sense of following a pattern. So it's not free verse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, <laughs> whether you believe in across the board uh, that poetry should follow a certain scheme, uh, you practice. Is that how you practice it? So those are my just general thoughts on Rick Tallender, um, sports writer as a poet. Uh, but then, you know, I shouldn't be surprised, Rick. We're going to get to this. Uh, the first book I ever read by you is called Heaven is a Playground. And that title is a metaphor. So yeah. uh, I shouldn't be surprised that you have a love for metaphor. You know, Ben, you bring up that title of Heaven is a Playground. Uh, that that book went through. It, was, it almost didn't get published. Very, very close. The first publisher said they were interested. They went out of business, went to another one. It ended up at St. Martin's Press. And I remember, you know, I didn't really know the editors and, and they said, well, OK, we'll publish this book. But and I somewhere I have the letter. You have to change the title. Uh, we don't like it. It's uh, you know, it's no good. Um, and I think they had some suggestions. They might not have had any. But there there's a one time I said, well, you know, I'd like that title. That title that book was written 46 years ago, 47 years ago. I was just a kid and um, it, it's resonated through history. So sometimes you have to defy uh, the rules or defy authority. And you talked about your own poetry. Of course, I was feared being embarrassed and people savaging it. But you brought up Robert Frost. And it was just a huge influence to me. And I think anybody who's read any poetry at all. And I could read Stopping by Woods uh, on a snowy evening a thousand times. And, you know, the hair in my arm stands up at the end. And I I don't know, you can even listen to Frost, watch Robert Frost himself read it. And he had his beautiful New England voice. You know, uh, he's being interviewed. It's black and white. You can see it on YouTube. And he says, so you'd like me to read the poem? And somebody says, yes. And so he does. And if you parse that that poem, whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. You will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. 
it, it goes, the meter, the, uh, the uh, measures is eight, six, six, eight. So there's eight, uh, eight syllables and six and six, then eight. That's the first stanza. And in that also, there are 30 words. And of those 30 words, I think with 25 are single syllable. And also the rhyme scheme is the first, the first rhyme, the first, um, Line is no, whose whizzies are I think I know. And then the second one rhymes, his house is in the village, though. And then the third one is, he will not see me stopping here. So here doesn't rhyme with though and snow, but the fourth one does, to watch his woods fill up with snow. Now, the first line of the next stanza, my little horse must think it queer to yeah. stop without a farmhouse near. That rhymes with the third line of the first stanza. And it's these little details, like these little bits of, of beauty, of symmetry that I think, to me, I agree with Frost completely. There were poets, John Milton, uh, you know, Paradise Lost, guys like that that said, well, rhyming is cheap, you know, and meter and, you know, Shakespeare, all these guys, whoever came along, anybody can do that. I say just the opposite. I read all kinds of blank verse, free verse, and it's just people randomly throwing thoughts out there. It's like, well, for Christ's sake, make it rhyme, make it, make something of of a kind of organized beauty to it. It's all about aesthetics. And so, uh, you know, I, I parsed everything I wrote in that book, my book, Sweet Dreams, Poems and Paintings for the Child of Bed, very old fashioned title to try to, um, to you know, thinking what would Robert Frost think? What would Emily Dickinson think? You know, if I were a student of theirs, would they say, oh my God, here's a, here's a match, light this on fire. <laughs> <laughs> or would they say, good job, yeah. Rick. You know, and I, I would like to think, the latter. They uh, listen. I, I'm not pretending to be, you know, as I said, E. e. Cummings or Archibald McLeish or, you know, even if there's a great. Uh, I think he was poet laureate. His name is Billy Collins. Such a simple name. And Billy, Co- yeah, Billy Collins. Some people like him. Some people don't. It's very simple. His uh, his uh, little poems, but I like him. And I just think poetry can be all kinds of things. The one thing I had in mind was this should be comforting and solace to any child and even young adult going to bed or having to go to sleep, or particularly if they're sick in bed, you know, everybody's been sick. And that was the deal. And back to that Sun-Times article I was allowed to write, that's over 3,000 words. And I, I tried to explain where this all came from and why, and even took apart a couple of the poems to show what I was thinking and how I varied things and tried to make things, uh, you know, different so it didn't sound boring all right well let's uh uh there's a story there that you've told a few times you tell it in this article i urge everybody to find it but sometimes it's free online you have to pay for you cheapskates uh (laughs) and uh, you just got to put up with those little blurb things that pop in and out uh kind of editorial aside all right uh uh talk about the circumstances tell people the circumstances the backstory if you will set up this is a lifelong writer known for sports, written several books, have talked about some of the books, have it as a playground, uh, 100-yard live about football. Uh, all of a sudden, he writes poetry. Talk about what uh, led to that. Well, it's uh, kind of that um, element that pushes a lot of people into whatever they might do. And, I, you know, I often think about a little kid who maybe was, you know, somehow crippled from birth or had some defect and could never play the sports, watch the kids out the window, you know, and he couldn't run or, you know, maybe they had some other, uh, you know, 
defect, which we all have at some point. I had been a guy like, you know, other than being deathly skinny and hungry all the time, I was, you know, I played everything. I played any sport there was with anybody, anytime uh, as a kid, all the way up. I'd never, I never even missed a game in college. I never missed a game in high school from injury ever. Not once. Uh, you know, first of all, I didn't want to. And second of all, I never had that traumatic injury. So for the first time in my life, I, I kind of had this pain in my stomach and then it just got worse and worse. And I thought, man, I better go to the hospital. And by the time I got there, I was panting. I was, it was such pain. And I, it was in my, like my gut. And I had no idea what it was. I thought I had some kind of food poisoning. I get in there and uh, I check into the hospital for two and a half weeks. And, and within time, I had, I counted one time six tubes in me, down my nose, down my throat, in my both arms, one going into my belly. They couldn't figure out what it was. I had this infection that was all through my uh, lower intestine, my appendix and stuff. I mean, I guess I could have died. Mm. I didn't eat for two and a half weeks. They just pumped me full of stuff. I actually gained a little weight, but when I got out of the hospital two and a half weeks later, all that water disappeared, and I'd lost about 15 pounds, and I was so nauseated. It wasn't pain after that, after I got some pain medication. The pain was always there, but it was the nausea, which prevented me from, I couldn't watch TV. I, I, I tried every movie, anything. I just couldn't. It was horrible. Couldn't read, couldn't concentrate to get to the end of a sentence. I liked to paint. I couldn't do that. I, I You know, I didn't. I was just lying there trapped. And I thought about, and so I started writing poems in my head. Uh, you know, like uh, the first one was, uh, what's it called? A, um, a snowy night, I think. And I, you know, it was winter time and I thought about snow coming down and these words kind of came to me and I memorized them. You know, I had all this time when you're focused like that, Ben, it's astounding. It, it was the worst thing in the world. I'd never want to go through it again. But out of it came this inspiration. I, I probably wrote three or four, maybe five poems kind of in my head. And then I would, when I could, I'd jot down notes about them. And I, this thought came to me, what, I'm an adult, uh, you know, when this was happening. I was like 40. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I can handle it, whatever. Even if I die, whatever. I've, you know, I've, I've made my, done done things and I'm an adult. So I, I know about the world. But what if you're a kid? What if you're alone like I was? And there are kids like that. I know there are. And then I thought about myself as a kid and everybody's a kid, the things you're afraid of at night, the times when you just don't want to go to bed, the times when you wake up in the middle of the night because of a nightmare, the things that you're unsure of, you know, is there a monster in my closet? I know there's one under my bed. Maybe you have a nightlight and, you know, your door is open. Maybe you call for your mom in the middle of the night, any of those things that kids go through. And so I just wanted to comfort them. Some of the poems I started writing were just, you know, I want to say silly, but they're just kind of fun to put a smile on your face. And other ones were what a child might think while lying in bed and what would comfort them. And one of the models for me in the back of my mind was Robert Louis Stevenson's A Child's Garden of Verses. Way old, over 100 years old. But I remember even when I was a kid, it was an old, old book then. And I remember reading some of those poems or having them read to me. And there was one in particular called The Land of Counterpain. I never knew what counterpain meant. And I looked it up. It's an archaic word for um, bedspread. And it was I remember there's a painting that went with it, just a small one. And it's a little, I think it's a boy. It could be a little girl because it's indeterminate. Lying in a bed uh, with the pillows and watching his little toy or her toy soldiers, little boats and things out on this bedspread and saying, you know, this is kind of my kingdom and it's it's wonderful. 
And so the idea of something beautiful or peaceful coming out of when you're actually bedridden, that struck me too. So how can I make it an enjoyable experience? And even if I had one poem, it's just about uh, taking a nap called Bumpy Afternoons. And it's about, uh, it's a great painting, a kid, uh, um, I compare it to riding a bull. You know, who wants to take a nap at two o'clock? And I have to. And so this bull is bucking this kid out of his bed. It's hilarious. And then I end it with a little twist, like saying, um, you know, maybe I'll just get on that bull and we'll ride out, ride out of here like a bull in a china shop. You know, just to soothe the kid that maybe his lying bed has to take a nap, maybe recovering from mental illness. So I credit Chris DeLuca, our sports editor. I said, Chris, I'd really like to write something about this book and explain it because it it coming it came out of nowhere, even though it took 30 years, Ben. Um, and, and he said, do it, just do it. And we do it in that Sports Saturday section, which yeah. is a pretty cool section. He said, take as many words as you want. So I just wrote and when I got, I didn't have a, uh, you know, a total in mind, but I got to 3,100. I counted them, you know, at the, or at the bottom. I said, okay, that's <laughs> enough. You know, you read it. I think it's enjoyable and it takes you down this little journey with me. Well, yeah, it's a, a, a great journey uh, in just in terms of your own personal experience and the, the sickness and the illness that you went through uh, and then relating uh, the fantasy world of a, a child uh, to the fantasy world that kind of exists in our brains. Uh, even to this day, I will, I will not share with the listeners or Rick of my fantasies. Uh, <laughs> I'll keep them in my brain. Uh, thank you. Uh, but I just want you to know in my fantasy world, uh, I dunked uh, on the San, uh, San Antonio Spurs last night. Um, and um, that's my fantasy world. Uh, what I did not know, and there was no reason that I should know uh, until I read the essay, uh, that you had this lifelong love for poetry that mm -hmm. goes back to when you were a kid uh, mm -hmm. and somebody read to you, yeah. uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, and I connected on that. My father, may you rest in peace, loved Robert Louis Stevenson's poetry, loved his stories. Uh, it it kind of sad but funny. And at the end when he was losing it, every year I think he was buying me kidnapped and he didn't realize he gave it to me the year before. But he just huh. felt that Robert Louis Stevenson was such a, you have to read this book. And I'm like, and you know, Robert <laughs> Louis Stevenson was sickly himself as a child yes, he was. and was always, you know, could not participate. You know, I always think about that. Guys who uh, I look at rock and roll uh, stars, you know, and I'll think my first thought is, I'll bet that guy never played football. I bet that that guy's too short to play basketball. Or maybe I've talked to so many rock you know, I don't want to say stars, but some stars, and they all love sports. Uh, or the vast majority it might be soccer, might be baseball. They reach a point where they realize I don't have that thing, but I bet I do have a talent for music. And, you know, you drift into or are steered into something that fits your life based on your limitations. And everybody has to learn their limitations. You think you're going to be in, you know, 100, uh, meter dash guy in the Olympics. Well, I can guarantee I'll look at everybody and say, no, 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 no. None of you will. If you can run a 10 flat, 10, 200 at age 16. Yeah, maybe you might have a chance, but all you other posers, no, it's just not going to happen. And if you're five foot eight, you're not going to play in the N NBA and that's okay. So we all make turns in our in our lives you know we have heartbreaks we i want to be something little kid says i want to be a fireman well maybe you can but they may say you can be president well 
first of all, you don't want to get in that cesspool, but second of all, you're not going to, but find something that you can do and, and, and put your heart into it. And, and poetry was always a part of my life. I, you know, I studied it at Northwestern, but it came from my, you know, my family, my older sister, Marcy, my mother, um, you know, God rest her soul. We had to read in the house and I loved it. You couldn't, uh, TV was taboo. I mean, you could watch Superman and, Mickey, the mouse club. Oh my God. If I hear that song, you know, <laughs> hi, I'm Cubby. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, and, but you couldn't just sit there and watch TV on a Saturday or something like that. You could read or you could get your butt out of the house. Otherwise you're going to have to do something like, you know, clean your room. So I was either outside or I was reading. That's basically what I did as a kid. So did you ever have a moment, uh, maybe in high school where you wanted to be a poet? Yes. Well, we, I think we all have moments where you want to be poets. You realize how difficult it is and you realize you need to have some deeper thoughts. Uh, yes. And you find out very quickly if you have a teacher or somebody who, who uh, analyzes it, you know, that it's not very good. Uh, but, you know, I've lived long enough now to have had experiences. I think I can filter certain thoughts and put them into this form, which is what I like. I, you know, iambic pentameter is a lot of things, but the I am. And that is a, a beat that everyone would recognize. It's compared to like a heartbeat, lub-dub, lub-dub. So I am is ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. And to read, like stopping by woods on a snowy evening, you can hear this. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near. Between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. And that resonates to us. Uh, th that form, that kind of beat has gone through poetry for the last, you know, 800 years. It's something that resonates with human humans, just like we, when rock and roll hits you, certain beats are innate to us. Mm -hmm. So that I am, that, that foot, if you will, is a big part of it. So I tried to adhere to that because I also think that's pleasing. A lot of these things I think are, we evolved with these things, our love of music. I mean, I don't think we fully understand why humans like what they do, and especially a little kid doesn't know. But I, I, I really think that um, when you hear a poem that uh, is not too deep and, and, and is too hard to understand, that it, um, you think about it. I brought up with you when we were talking earlier, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and I think everybody reads that Samuel Taylor Coleridge poem. You read it at some point, or at least you used to in grade school or early in high school. And what do you remember that from that? You remember the symbol of the albatross. They, they shoot the albatross on this ship, this kind of bizarre thing going on. And the albatross is a symbol of decency and innocence. And the ancient mariner, at some point, they hang it around his neck. So we use that metaphor all the time. Somebody might say, you know, even in sports writing, ah, there's an albatross hanging around that yeah. team. And you might not know where it came from. And then also that great line, there's great lines, um, water, water, yeah, everywhere. Water, not a drop water. Drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And oh, the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere. Mm -hmm. And nay, a drop to yeah. drink. Yeah. You know, so poetry can change your lives in that way. Uh, I remember uh, just listening to you on that. Uh, once interviewing uh, the great Studs Terkel, and he was talking about how that poem resonated with him, the concept oh, of water, water everywhere, but there's nothing to drink. Man, yeah. Oh, God. And, and uh, <laughs> sorry, Studs, for that Studs imitation. But um, all right. So 
you're concentrating right now uh, on uh, with that last riff on putting a poem together and deciphering the structure of a poem. And, and again, the, the rules, if you will, that the poet followed uh, to express whatever he or she wanted to express. Let's get to the expression, all right? And for me, my love of poetry is entering a poem uh, and knowing... You, oh God, I go. I I got to read a poem maybe twelve times, uh, mm-hmm. you know, maybe twelve times. A really good poem. So we'll, we'll do the Robert Frost poem, and it's like there's something happening here. I could go Buffalo Springfield on you, Rick. There's something mm-hmm. happening here, but it's not exactly clear. Okay, yep. I yep. know there's something going on here, but I don't know what it is. So I'm going to yeah. have to read it again. And then you ever notice how you have to sometimes read a poem? Like you have to get to the, find the flow of the poem because it breaks in the lines. And so you literally read it from point A to point B, the end of the line, and you stop. There's that, your mind stops. But the flow of the poem is it's a different flow, and you kind of got to adjust to what he's doing. And Yeah, exactly. It, it is a uh, – you have this aha moment too. And with – again, to parse that, it might be a perfect poem, stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Everybody knows it. It's a simple thing. The guy stopping. He's in a sleigh, I believe, being pulled by a horse it's a long time ago. And, it's you know, snow, it's a peaceful, beautiful night. The wind is blowing very softly, and he's just looking around and thinking how beautiful and peaceful it is. Well, that's that can appeal to anybody. That's the simple parsing of this poem. Deep parsing is what is stopping there in the middle of the night on the darkest day uh, of the year, which is today, by the way, or yesterday, this is the shortest day, the the solstice. That's when he stopped. This is very apropos. And what is he doing? He says uh, his horse, you know, is like, is curious. What are we doing here? And he says, he gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake, the only other sounds the sweep mm. of easy wind and downy flake. Then the last stanza. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. Now, <laughs> Frost is a genius. He knows exactly what he's doing. He repeats that last line. Yeah. Almost has something to put you to sleep. And what does all this darkness and peace symbolize? It clearly symbolizes death. And he has this... It's death wish, but he has miles to go. He has so much to do, duties, and there's only one. This is the thing. It's There's 108 total words in this poem. Of those, 89 are one syllable, 18 are two syllable, and only one is three syllable, and it's there for a reason, and the word is promises. He has promises to keep. Now, believe me, Frost knew he was using that word and all these other simple words that rhyme in this very unusual scheme and also go 8668, 8668. Uh, it's just, it's like devastating what, this is not by accident, not one bit of this. And so you realize this poem is actually about that thing that it haunts us all. Um, you know, everything we do, what is the big What's the the big overarching theme? And that's, you know, we're all going to die. And is it peaceful? It, would that, is that something you wish for? And then he doesn't. And they're going to take, they're going to keep going. But for that moment, he had that thought, the woods, to call a snow a woods lovely, dark, and deep is just like, oh, man, I could just sleep here. 
Yeah, lovely, you know, dark and deep. Horse, yeah, yeah, yeah. His horse says, let's go. And you know the horse <laughs> in that? You know it's analogous to? And this is a great, you've never heard this before. The cat in the hat. Yeah. The fish in the bowl is the moral, reasonable voice. And he keeps saying to Sally and, his, and her brother, who, with the cat in the hat, destroying the house with thing one and thing two. Again, two of the greatest uh, minor characters ever created in American literature, thing one and thing two. But he's saying, get this damn cat out of here. What are you guys doing? You kid, He must go. Get this cat. He must leave. And that's, in a way, these two kids are thinking, this this is wonderful. This entertainment that's happening in our house is being destroyed while mom's away. And the, the fish in the bowl is saying, no, don't. He's just like the horse who's saying, what are we doing here to Robert Frost? Uh, I'm going to go back. By the way, it was an excellent uh, analysis. Uh, and we're back in uh, freshman English uh, composition uh, with Rick Tellender. Uh, yep. And uh, I had a flashback. I had a flashback to um, when you went on that riff. Uh, when I was, I was freshman, I was taking a basic uh, poetry course and, uh, the teacher told us one of the, the books in the poetry book uh, that we had was, uh, uh, stop it by woods. And, um, <laughs> the teacher said, you can write, uh, I want you to start off by writing an analysis of, uh, any poem in this book. Don't write a poem, an analysis of stopping by. I've heard too, read too many of this teacher. She's been up there in years. She's been, no, I don't want to hear any more. Would you have any thoughts? She and needs I'm to like, be I want to talk her. <laughs> I've had enough. The darkest evening of the year. Now, I get a little obsessive about these things, Rick, that mm -hmm. line, the darkest evening of the year. I remember mm -hmm. thinking about this. I'm a little embarrassed to admit this. The darkest evening of the yes, my first impulse, as you said, was, oh, he's talking about, what is it, December 22nd, when the sun sets uh, at the earliest. But that would be the earliest setting of the sun. The darkest evening dark. of the year. Dark is like, it's dark. It's really dark out. And I'm yeah. like, does he literally mean December 22nd? This is the kind of thing I think. Or was it just some kind of metal? I don't know. I see it that way. That's a good point. It's dark. And if it's dark. How can he see all these things? How can he see the snow? How does he know where he's going? Does he have a lamp? Does he have a light? I think that dark is almost a metaphor. It, the, you know, like it's a dream. But it's, you know, when you go to sleep, and, and he's talking about sleep, you know, and sleep being the equivalent of death. And I'm, I feel sorry for that poor teacher who had to hear this knowledge <laughs> for thirty years. You know, go. You, you need to leave, sweetheart. You need to go become a librarian or something. <laughs> McDonald's, <laughs> get out. But it's still a great poem, even though we all know it. It may be cliched. Uh, but the dark thing is what we all feel when you go to sleep. You know, Billie Eilish just had a, a song, you know, where do, we, where do we go when we dream or whatever? Where do we go when we sleep? You know, it's kind of like what a 17-year-old would ask. Well, we're all 17-year-olds. Where do we go? I don't think we know. I, I guarantee you we don't know. And the dream world is a fascinating world. Been a couple movies made that were dreams. Um, I can't think of the name of uh, uh, Nolan. Did Christopher Nolan make one that was essentially a dream where, you know, you'll have dreams that cut to a different reality. You know, you'd be walking in sand and then the next second yeah. you're sitting in a building somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I know that movie you're talking about. You know how they make yeah. no sense? Yeah. 
yeah. what's going on? What is what is it all about? You know, dreams are they're crazy, man. Yeah, uh, I know. What I, I remember seeing going, not knowing what the hell was going on, and then every millennial in the country knew it, and it was expand. What you missed was that uh, I remember that movie. Uh, it was about ten years ago. Um, yeah. Leonardo okay. DiCaprio was in it. I, I, anyway, no, I, it wasn't him. It was the other guy. Uh, uh, it'll come to me uh, in a moment. Probably when I was like, it, it got me really disoriented. It was kind of like this is a little nuts. Didn't Ellen Page now Elliot Page? She no. was in it. It'll come no. to me in a way, okay. and I, I have to leave the topic, and then it'll emerge as if right. I'm a dream. Uh, all right. Um, so uh, the concept that I want to get at is a poem uh, where it has a meaning uh, that's deeper or more profound uh, than what is actually going on. So you just uh, explain that uh, with st- stopping by the woods. He's, it's, it's, it tells the story of a man riding through the woods, but it's a deeper meaning. Something else is going on. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sometimes when I, like Bob Dylan See, I, I even read like Bob Dylan, like uh, poetry, uh, or I'll read um, Stevie Wonder, who's a great lyricist in my opinion, like poetry, or Stephen Sondheim, the great, these great masters of like, I, I'm just in awe of them. But like, there's a greater meaning, uh, Rick, uh, to what what they're saying and what they're getting at. Uh, and I struggle with that because sometimes I'm like with some poets and Dylan, like Dylan, for instance, I'm like, he's just, he doesn't really get at anything. Mm-hmm. He's just stitching words together to, he's messing with them. whatever came to his mind. He put down there. I don't think there is a greater meaning to this. Do you ever read a poem where you think to yourself, you know, this guy's a con artist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All the time. Sure. Just blabbering. And it's like hinting at a lot of things and maybe I'm supposed to understand, but I don't. Um, Yes, I know exactly what you're saying. And the same with Dylan, like all along the watchtower, it's kind of like, what's going on here? But boy, I tell you, by the time, you know, when Hendrix plays it or even when Dylan does it, by the end of the song, I get this, you know, two writers were approaching and the wind began to howl. It's like, bam, something's going on here. And I get this. Uh, maybe it's an inexpressible feeling that a, a good poem can bring to you. But it's also usually a twist at the end, a deeper meaning, just like, you know, Frost. And um, I did one that's called Prism, and it's a, a little kid lying in bed, and every morning the sun comes through a water glass that the child has on his or her bed. And he or she is looking at it and thinking, where does all, where do all these colors come from, from this colorless light? Is it like salt in the sea, like, uh, you know, uh, dust in the air, just things you can't see, sugar and tea, salt in the sea, and goes on and thinking, so I still await these rays every day, and it makes me wonder, am I like the sun? Have my hues begun? And it's like, am my simple little kid self that I am, do I have all this complexity that I'm seeing in uh, the the colors of the prism of the the whole color wheel on my wall from colorless light going through a water glass? So that to me was a little twist that people might say, oh, that's kind of cool. I like that idea that we're like a a ray of sunlight. Uh, Why? Can you read that poem for us? The entire, do you have it in front of you? Uh, Rick's going to do a dramatic reading for us, and then I'm going to ask him while while he's getting ready to find the place and everything uh, to talk about another poem that he he um, which has an interesting backdrop, not the one that he wrote, 
uh, but the one that he loved so much that he clipped it out of the newspaper. I got a, such a kick when he said this to me because I thought I was the only lame-o who did stuff like that. You brought that up, Ben. That's, that was almost 22 years old. I've had it up on a little bulletin board. You can see stuff is spilled on yeah. it. <laughs> Coffee stains. It's, oh, it's really priceless. Uh, and I'm just going to give tease. I'm going to write about this, ladies and gentlemen, his poem and my old freshman year poetry book, I have a composition. I already wrote it, drafted it. It's coming out. I'll, I'll send it to you, Rick, when it comes out. All right. Uh, yes. So take it away. The floor is yours. Uh, recite your okay. poem. Read your this poem. poem is called Prism, and it's illustrated by Maria Vec, who has her own studio and Mar- in, down in near Roscoe Village called August House. And she is the daughter of the legendary baseball impresario Bill Vec, who is, you know, just a great guy, quite a character. Met him a few times, and Mario is a wonderful painter. Great interpretation of Prism. And I'll read it. The sun is yellow, a one-toned fellow, but some of his rays have colorful ways. The shaft that comes in, the window at 10, strikes like glass a bed and then turns to red and purple and green and paints a bright sheen on a wall that's white in regular light. At 10, there are glints of colors and tints that hide like a dream in that little beam till it stripes the wall with a pattern small, but wonderfully bright for colorless light. The shades must be there like wind in the air, like sugar and tea, like salt in the sea, or else they reside in the crystal side of a water glass where little can pass. But I doubt that's so. The sun makes things grow. And I will presume when it spears my room at that morning hour and bursts like a flower, it shows me a part of its warming heart. I wonder each day while waiting that ray, am I like the sun? Have my hues begun? Wow. Uh, did you write that in one moment or is that? No, nah, no. Um, I, you know, I, I always go back to like uh, the sun also rises by Hemingway and they, and they ask, how did Mike go bankrupt? And he says, well, you know, he's a drunk, dissolute you know, <laughs> yeah. wretch, even in his yeah. 20s. He said, well, two ways, actually, uh, slowly and then all at once. Okay. <laughs> and so some of these poems went fast in the um, – I, I had to figure out the structure. I wanted this – these are four uh, four beats per line or five. And then um, and then each rhyme uh, – each line rhymes with the next. So I, want, I figured I wanted to do it that way. And uh, I probably wrote half of it at one time. And then some of these poems I put away, you come back to them a week, two weeks, a month later, and you read it with a whole different you know, set of eyes. It's like, oh, okay, now I know where this should go. You know what I mean? And you might also find something that just doesn't work. Um, i tell you one of the, uh, I don't know, funniest or worst experiences I had. I wrote a poem called uh, Dinosaur Time. And it's about a little kid. It's a, it's a good one. It's illustrated by Peggy McNamara, who is the artist in residence at the Field Museum, who does all the art you'll see if you go to the field. Magnificent watercolors. She's just great. Anyway, she illustrated it, and I wrote it, and I lost it. I, I mean, it disappeared. I had it on, you know, typing, and somehow everything blew up. It was gone. I couldn't retrieve it. So this this has happened to me before, and it's awful. So I rewrote it mm. as fast as I could from wow. what I could remember. Yeah. <clears throat> and here's the thing, Ben. About a month later, I found the original. <laughs> it was it had gone into some deep well somewhere, you know. God knows what happens on the internet. So now I had two poems 
about the same topic that were almost the same, but weren't. And I had to figure out which one was better. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah. So that was, that was, uh, it, you know, God bless and God damn the, uh, the computer. <laughs> I, uh, um, that's actually not a bad problem to have. Which one is better as opposed to both of them lost? You know what I'm saying? At least. Yeah. Yeah. It was weird though. I ended up combining them sort of, but then I look at, I look at another one and I think, ah, should I? you know, but so anyway, I ended up with one and I just said, that's it. You're done. Okay. I will show you my ability to turn everything into a sports conversation. It's not unlike what the bulls are facing right now. They must determine, are they a better team without their best player, Zach Levine? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Rick Teller is always ready to have a sports conversation. Yes. <laughs> you got to have a quick opinion. I'll tell you why, Ben. I, I, I know you follow the Bulls, and I, you know I do too. I remember asking a coach, this is a while back, and saying, God, man, you're going to trade this guy, or if you lose this guy, or you did lose him, and he was averaging 30 points a game. Yeah. You know, what are you going to do? And, and he said, oh, somebody else will score him. So that's not the issue. Zach Le- Levine is a good player, but he – he has to have the ball. He has to do his Michael Jordan thing, and he's not quite Michael Jordan. And when that happens, everybody else kind of stands around. And if Levine is cold, yeah, you're, it's a disaster, you know. Uh, and so they be yes, Kobe White's coming along. They're, they're better. They're playing as. Believe me, these guys at Desumu, you know, he might have been out of the league, but you give him a chance and say you don't have to worry about the superstar being here. I think this is for real. Now, I don't know if they're a championship team without him. You know, they get Vooch and all these guys and Patrick Williams. Uh, you know, uh, they can blossom in their third or fourth year. But what is their record since Levine got injured? Uh, well, since you, you asked, I will tell you, eight and three. Uh, yeah. And two of those, like, look at them. What a weird human being I am. I know the answer to that question, okay? <laughs> Nobody pays me to know this stuff. Joe Collier, sometimes, he gets paid to know this stuff. All right. Uh, Nobody pays okay. me to know this stuff. I, uh, they're eight and three, Rick. Since you asked, I told you. Uh, <laughs> and they've won uh, three in a row, and I'm really excited. All right. Let's leave the Bulls uh, and go uh, to a poet named Richard Wilbur, uh, who died, I think it was last year. Uh, and uh, we'll close with a little talk about this poem. Uh, it's a very hard poem to find, by the way. It's not one of his yes. well known yes. poems. Uh, it's a poem he wrote for The New Yorker. And as Rick said, about 2002, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you go online and Google uh, Richard Wilbur, you won't find it, uh, Rick. Uh, I'm grabbing it right okay, now. You're grabbing it. I'm, I'm going to give you the introduction. I have a copy of a photograph that I took of, of a text that Rick sent me. Uh, and um, the name of the poem is Man uh, Running. Yep. Uh, and it's a very intriguing poem. This is one that I've, I, I was unaware of when you sent it to me. Okay. Uh, I have subsequently read it 20 times, uh, discovering something different every time. Sometimes the things I discover, I lose them. This is something else in poetry. Like I see it. And then if I don't write it down, it's gone, man. I'm like, wait a minute. What was that idea I had about, about this poem? It's just like <laughs> so fleeting. Uh, and it's also what I, some of the things I love about the mystery of poetry. Uh, man running. Wow. I don't know if I want you to read uh, the whole poem, but since you have it in front of you, go ahead. Knock yourself out. Uh, this poem, I just got a lot to say. So take it away, Rick. 
Okay, first of all, the beauty of the poem also is in you, literally looking at it. You see, it's like uh, one pyramid after the other, and it go. The measures are six, eight, ten, ten in each stanza. Six, eight, ten, ten, and the rhyme scheme goes a b b a, and then c d d c. Each uh, it keeps that pattern, this strict pattern, uh, which you may not even notice. You don't have to. I'm parsing it because that's what I like to do. But it adds to the pleasure of reading this. And this poem comes up every time, Ben, in my mind when there's an escape from a prison, or we can talk about that. And for just a little while, you're rooting for that guy on the run. And and the end of it is this person's on the run, uh, you know, starts out whatever he has done against our law and peace of mind. Our mind's eye looks with pity of a, of a kind at the scared, stumbling fellow on the run. And then it goes through his running way and it gets to the end. Ditching the stolen truck, he disappears into a vast, deep-wooded wilderness and is at last beyond the reach of law and out of luck. And we are one with him, sharing with him that eldest dread, which when it gathers in a sleeping head is a place mottled, ominous, and dim, remembered from the day when we descended from the trees into the shadow of our enemies, not lords of nature yet, but naked prey. And the twist on this is, is when he says he's beyond the reach of law and out of luck. He's, he's beyond humanity. And this dude is in this, he's just a creature in the woods. And, uh, I mean, it's like, I was not expecting that, but that is the deep, darkest feeling this this vicarious dark thrill that we get when these uh, remember those guys who escaped from up it was it it was called Atamora or something someplace way up new, upstate new york yeah or vermont or somewhere yeah. and they were on the run for i don't know they're bad guys but they had gotten out a movie was even made of it recently with benicio del toro and i was rooting for the guys they're in the deep woods and almost on the border of canada and i don't know so anyway, there you go. Well, I uh, right. just think about that line beyond the reach of law and out of luck. Now, that one threw me like, wait a minute. You're beyond the reach of law. That's what you want. Why would you yes. be out of luck? Why yeah. would you be out of luck if you're beyond the reach of the law? And, yeah, well, this is it, because now it's the law of the jungle. And that's what Wilbur's is uh, kind of harking back to for all of us, you know, we're, we're just evolutionary creatures who deep inside of us, that's why we like, you know, sugar, salt, fat, because we couldn't get it as animals, you know. So that's why people love, a, a, you know, McDouble, or, you know, a, a, a cheeseburger. That's why we love potato chips. Those were hard to come by. So this is when a man is on the run and at least when the law is after him, he knows the rules. Mm. Bring up that thing, no net for tennis, you know. That's a very good analogy. Now there's no net. There is nothing. And it's like, oh, boy, now you're just you're not even king of the jungle. Well, I'll extend the metaphor. America, if you elect Donald Trump as your president in November, you will be beyond the reach of law because Donald Trump has essentially uh, insisted that laws do not apply to him. And his followers insisted as well. They do not apply to him. So America you will be like this protagonist uh, in this poem by Richard Wilbur. Yes. Uh, you know, that, again, is apropos. And we, you know, all my friends, everybody I ever talked to, you, you try to talk about things, eventually it always 
always, always, whether you wanted to or not, comes back to Trump, this creature who could end the United States as we know it. And I mean, that's not hyperbole. Listen, I used to talk to my dad all the time about World War II. He was a bomber pilot, you know, about the Nazis, about Germany, about the way uh, Mussolini came to power. He was very knowledgeable about that. And he actually loved Italy. He was stationed over there, even though they were bombing in northern Italy, things like that. And we spent a lot of time talking about it. And, you know, he's God rest his soul, been dead now for, what, almost 10 years? Uh, but he would be stunned, astounded that this this has happened in our country. It, we're barely clinging to civility. And, you know, the idea of the United States, as we know it, coming to an end, it, it's not far-fetched. It's not extreme. It's this next election, man. Oh, baby. And I wish to God Biden weren't, you know, 10,000 years old. And I wish there were a lot of other things going on because this man cannot become president. He, he cannot. I, I don't care. I, you know, Rod Blagojevich, any, anybody in there except this man. Yeah. No, I hear you, man. It's, it, it is the darkest evening of the year to tie all our metaphors together. Uh, all right. Uh, I urge everybody to, um, uh, to get Rick's uh, book. Hey, you know what? Go to the library if you don't want to buy it. All right. I always give a little shout out to the libraries. I love libraries. I love librarians. Uh, I've ordered it for my granddaughter. Uh, and, um, if the, and and even if you don't like poetry, look at the pictures. It's got nice pictures. All right. Uh, and, yeah, can uh, I say a word about the, the paintings? Go ahead. There's 42 poems and 42 different artists. And that's one of the reasons it took 30 years. The main reason, I talked to each one of these artists. And they're from four different countries. You know, I tracked them down, hunted them down with my journalistic <laughs> dog-eat-dog skills. Uh, and every one of them agreed to do a painting. So the the painting with a book designer, I got a shout-out to him, uh, Al Brantner in Chicago, brilliant book designer, album cover designer, great guy. Uh, and he helped me. He put this together. So the paintings are all on one side, the whole side of the page. We really argued over the quality of the paper. We didn't want any bleed through. So you can just look at the paintings and each one is different. They're, they're acrylics, they're oils, they're watercolor, they're uh, gouache, they're uh, pastels. Got to, I have somebody that's a, a master pastel painter of the Society of America. They're uh, uh, pen and ink, colored pencils. I mean, there's almost anything you can do, but it's real Art. It's not manufactured from, you know, AI. And uh, each one of them agreed to do it. So just look at the paintings. Yeah. If you're a little kid. Don't even read Rick's stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, so we're going to bring you back uh, to Rick, a sports guy, and we'll close uh, with this. And it's a simple yes or no question, but I'll allow you to fill in the blanks afterwards. Should the Chicago Bears re-sign Justin Fields? Go. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh <laughs> my God. Okay. That's like, is there a God? Of, you're, this is an unanswerable question. Listen, they re signed Jay Cutler after you had a good game, a couple yeah. good games, and that didn't work out too well. Listen, I suggested, I know you disagree, but I suggested they turn him into a different type of quarterback. Get a quarterback now. They already blew it, missed on Patrick Mahomes. They missed on CJ Stroud, you know, who I think is going to be really good. I, it, could it be the coaching? Yes. Does he need more receivers, better offensive line? Yes, 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 yes. But at some point, it comes down to him. At some point, he's been there three years. And I think he's, I think there's playing quarterback in the NFL, doing it well. It's the most difficult sports thing in the world 
anything. I don't care. It's like playing tennis at a great level. Novita, uh, you know, whatever his name is, uh, any of those guys. Uh, but you're playing tennis, and while you're serving this great 150-mile-an-hour serve, somebody's diving at your knees. Mm. You know, that's the difference. It's like making a 30-foot putt, but there's somebody coming trying to earhole you, and you can see him out of the corner of your mm. eye. Uh, or you're putting uh, while you're putting, somebody pushes you backwards. So saying that you're not a great starting NFL quarterback is not a real knock. Neither are 99.9999% of all the people on this planet. And I could go on with that digit nine. If you use this guy like Taysom Hill when he was at his peak for the Saints and he would run and pass and catch touchdowns, Almost in the same game. Against the Bears this year, Taysom Hill threw a touchdown and caught one. Okay? Because the Saints are smart enough to utilize him in ways that, like, the defense is like, we don't know what to do about this. This guy feels is the greatest open field runner for a quarterback I think I've ever seen. Uh, matches Lamar Jackson or Michael Vick. When, he's a, when he takes off, nobody can catch him. I mean, he's a quarterback, for God's sake. With these little cornerbacks, what are you doing? Catch the guy in the camps. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. So, uh, but I think there's something missing when it comes to field vision, whatever that genius is. I don't know what it is, and it's the most difficult thing. So I know you disagree, but I would re-sign him, but I would say we're going to also draft another quarterback, bud. Okay, well, that would be, wow, what a creative thing that would be for the Chicago Bears. Which is so outside. Why? Rick now will be the therapist. Why? <laughs> Call the I could have been a fan of any team, Rick, and I chose the Chicago Bears. Oh, you didn't choose the Lions or the Browns, so okay. <laughs> okay. I got a son-in-law from Cleveland, and uh-huh. even his kids, little kids are suffering. They put on Browns jerseys. Wait, does your or, son-in-law you know, live in Cleveland? Huh? Or, no, they live here now in yeah, Evanston. Yeah. So there's nobody relatives. in Cleveland. I have a friend, a dear friend, Tony with a T. He's from Cleveland. He loves all the Cleveland team. I go, you love it so much. What are you doing in Chicago? Everybody is from Cleveland. Nobody is in Cleveland. Okay, no. that's why I asked. You have a son-in-law from Cleveland. Yeah, he's from it. He's not in it. <laughs> but he still probably rooted for the Browns last week. Oh, God, speaking of painful games. Yeah, the Browns, no, you know, whatever you do, the Browns would be worse. That's just guaranteed. <laughs> They're going to screw up this season. I don't know how. They got Miles Garrett, you know. That's They've hilarious. had their fourth winning quarterback. Fourth quarterback. They got a guy who's 7,000 years old. Quarterback <laughs> for him now. That, I mean, uh, the, the current Browns quarterback was actually in the sleigh with Robert Frost when he rode. Uh, <laughs> uh, he was there. Yeah. He said, hey, horse, we got to go. All right. We got to go, uh, Rick. Thank you very much. It was a blast talking poetry with you. Maybe bring you back, not just to talk about sports, but poetry. It's a bunch of poems. I'd love to get uh, hear you analyze uh, there's a couple uh, Wilbur poems that I, I had prepared, but we run out of time. So maybe I'll bring, I don't know if you've read any. I'd love to do it. You know, it is like being, remember we all had fun in the dorm room, just talking about stuff. Or even when you're younger, every now and then, even tough ass guys might end up talking about some book they read. You know, I still love it. I, I, I'd lo- I will do it anytime. You have a beer, just sit around, you know, whatever. 
Well, the next All time right. we do this, he's, uh, Rick will be in my attic. We'll be sharing a microphone, and we're going to go out to eat. At uh, my, we already cut that deal. Can't uh, wait. So that'll be a lot of fun. Rick's going to actually right. have to. I don't know where you're living these days, Evanston or wherever. You're going to have get in a car and drive to my house. All right. All right. Very good, uh, Rick. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year's to everybody. Uh, and uh, peace and love, baby. Take care. 